Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesselin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. On Miranda Warnings today, we welcome Patricia Salkin. Welcome, Patty. Thanks, David. Patty Salkin is the provost of the graduate and professional divisions of Toro College and previously served as dean of the Toro College Jacob Fuchsberg Law Center from 2012 to 2016. We're very happy to have uh, Patty Salkin here to talk about uh, law school and legal education. Patty, can you tell us what changes are we seeing uh, specifically in how uh, law schools are experimenting with changes to the manner in which they present courses to law students? Sure. Well, uh, the ABA has recently made many changes to the standards on legal education, I think designed in large part to allow law schools to begin to experiment uh, with different formats and also to give law schools the opportunity to figure out ways to reduce the cost of access to legal education. So, uh, for example, you used to be ranked on the number of volumes of books in your library. But with technology, we don't need to be uh, counting volumes of books anymore because we can get uh, most of the sources that we need online. The ABA also used to track the student-faculty ratios, and they no longer ask for that information. Those are just a couple of examples. Most significantly, though, this summer, uh, the ABA, before the House of Delegates, uh, passed a resolution at the request of the ABA Council on Legal Education to, some would say relax, others would say authorize an increase in the number of credits that students can earn online. And I think this is really going to revolutionize how legal education is delivered across the United States. So now that we're going to have more law school classes that are online, um, how is that going to uh, affect the way the classes are taught? Uh, traditional law, law classes were done uh, you know, in a big uh, conference room where students uh, potentially were chosen on at random to talk about uh, you know, their assessment of the cases that were being read the night before. Isn't there a little bit more anonymity when you're learning uh, through an online course? Actually, that's a good question, and the answer is it's exactly the opposite. So, so first, let me just backtrack and say that the, even the way the standards are now, you cannot get your law degree entirely online without an ABA variance to their rules. So there is a program uh, that's entirely online. There's another program that's almost all online, but a little hybrid. And then there are a bunch of hybrid programs that are uh, popping up right now. Uh, but, but by and large, the ABA standard now says, as of August, that a law school can grant a student up to one-third of the credit hours required for a JD. So for example, if your law school requires 90 credits, you can earn 30 credits online. The old standard was 15 credits, and in New York, the Court of Appeals still limits it to 15 credits. So New York is not yet caught up uh, to the ABA, and it's something that we hope uh, the Court of Appeals will do uh, in changing their rules this year. And the difference, and the difference is uh, all law schools want to be accredited by the ABA that 
provides a, a benefit to the law school. But if you're a law school in New York, in order to be able to take the bar exam in New York, you also need to meet the requirements that the Court of Appeals provides. And what you're saying is the ABA's requirements are now uh, different than what the New York New York requirements are correct and so and first of all to take the bar exam in New York the court requires that you have been graduated from an ABA accredited law school and the ABA isn't going to accredit the school if you don't comply with the standards and so you have to comply with this rule and the standards Um, but but right now the New York Court of Appeals only allows up to 15 credits online and so the ABA has essentially uh, doubled it uh, pretty much. And so uh, we're, we're hoping that the Court of Appeals will do that for New York as well. The other thing is that uh, in New York, you can't take essentially any of your first year of law school online. So it says the rules say your first 28 credits have to be in the classroom bricks and mortar. But the ABA has now said that up to 10 online credits can be taken in your first year. Um, and so that's a, a significant change. Now, what's the benefit of having online classes? And I think there's a number of parties that I'd like to know what the benefit are. Sure. One is for the law school. The other is for the law student. Uh, the other is for the legal profession in general. And then the, what about the public we right. serve? Right. Well, so let's, let's talk about the instruction. I'll go back to your, your last question first. I have taught uh, classes online, both synchronous and asynchronous. So one way is... The students are, we all meet at, let's say, 8 o'clock at night using Zoom or some other platform, and I can see all my students, they can see me, the class meets on a regular schedule, I can call on people, I could see if they're not paying attention, I can, uh, they can jump into the conversation, they could raise their hand, the technology allows you to essentially be the same and feel like you're in the same space together. So that's one way of delivering an online course. And the bottom line is you can do it from your home. You can do it from your office. You don't have to commute to get to a bricks and mortar location to be with everybody in the same physical space, but you are in the same virtual space at the same time. Another way of delivering online courses is to uh, do it asynchronously where There's readings and there's discussion boards and postings and there's a conversation that's taking place virtually, but you're not seeing your classmates and you're not seeing the professor uh, in terms of their faces, but you are having a conversation. And so you asked, you know, so how does that uh, jive with what everybody remembers in law school as sitting in the classroom with 30 people, 50 people, 100 people, the professor in front, and calling on people. Well, when you're in that classroom for 50 minutes, which is really a a classroom hour, how many people can get called on by the professor in 50 minutes? How many people can get called on in a week? And so we know... You only need one. You only need one. But when we went to law school, right, you could get by without being called on in class for weeks. Because if you were in a large class... You knew, you know, when the professor went down the row or the professor went alphabetically, I mean, you could figure out pretty much, for the most part, when it was going to be your turn, and you were only on then. I got to tell you, I was very prepared when we discussed Miranda v. Arizona, and I did not get get called, and I thought for sure I was going to get called on. Yeah, that's too bad. (laughs) But, But when you're teaching an online class, everybody really has to participate, and my course evaluations from the online courses are that students thought they were much harder because, for example, 
you'd give a reading and you'd say to the students, here are three questions. You have to answer two out of the three questions on a discussion board for all your classmates to see. And here's my grading rubric. I'm going to grade you on the following things. And you have to demonstrate that you read the material. You have to cite to passages in a case or in a reading. You have to, you know, to use it so you can't just fake your way through it. Then, after that's done by a certain date, the next few days you have to respond to any two of your classmates' postings. And you can agree or disagree with them. And by, by doing that and bringing that out and giving your rationale, A, you're demonstrating that you've read the material, that you've thought about it, that you have formed your own thoughts about it. We're showing that people can write because you have to write and it's up there for the entire class and beyond to see are you writing complete sentences, are you writing paragraphs, are you making a cogent argument, are you using correct grammar. I mean, so all of that is out there. And that's one of the things that I think members of the bar complain about is that new lawyers don't know how to write well. Well, in an online class, you're writing all the time in order to succeed in that class. Second thing is you have to be reflective, not just on the reading that you do, but you have to also reflect on what your classmates think. And you have to figure out how to respond to your classmates who you may disagree with in a professional way. And that's a real life skill that we have to, to do every day as lawyers. And so I think that there's a lot of really great things that come out of an online class that the average person doesn't think about. It is definitely not an easy class. It's, it's not an easy A. It's a very hard B uh, to take an online class and to do it the right way. Patty, uh, you are currently serve as co-chair of the New York State Bar Association's Committee on Legal Education. Uh, you've served in that capacity for several years, including when uh, New York State was considering changing the form of its bar exam from a New York-centric bar exam to uh, what's called the UBE, or Uniform Bar Exam. The New York State Bar Association uh, much due in part to the work of your committee, uh, was opposed to changing to the UBE, which we currently have now. Tell us a little bit about why the, the feeling was at the time that we should stick with the New York State Bar Exam and, and not transfer to the UBE. So I think that there were uh, two primary reasons why uh, people thought that the New York Bar Exam was better than the Uniform Bar Exam. Uh, first and foremost was the fact that it was an exam that focused on New York law um, in, in large part because there was one day that was just New York essays and multiple choice questions and they focused really on the differences in New York law from national law. Um, there always was a second day that was uh, the 200 multiple choice questions that were national and that is part of the uniform bar exam. The only thing that really was different was there are no New York essays, now they are national essays. And of course you have to answer them using the uniform rules, which New York does not follow the uniform rules most of the time. So we're training students in New York law schools on law that is not valuable if they're going to practice in New York. So uh, that was one uh, major concern that, that people had. I think the, the second concern that people had is that you were giving up the testing authority to a not-for-profit organization that's based in another state and that is not regulated by anybody because they're a not-for-profit. 
as opposed to the way that the bar exam had been developed in New York through the New York Board of Law Examiners and their work with the courts and statutory authorization and regulatory uh, oversight and an opportunity for members of the bar to be involved in writing the questions that were New York specific and grading the New York uh, state specific questions and more input into uh, that process. So let's talk about the first one uh, first, about uh, the emphasis on New York law. So since the bar exam has changed, so they're not emphasizing New York law, uh, law students uh, who go to law school and want to pass the bar exam perhaps aren't focusing on New York law. When you and I went to law school uh, in New York, many, uh, many schools required that you take something called New York practice. And uh, that was helpful not only if you were going to practice in New York, but extremely helpful if you're going to take the New York State bar exam. What are you seeing now as far as students focus, law students focus on on New York practice? It's sad. <laughs> I, you know, it is is the uh, the bottom line. Our committee did a survey of all of the New York law schools, asking for data numbers of students that enrolled in New York practice the year before the UBE went into effect and then during this last academic year, 2017 to 2018, the percentage of students taking New York practice dropped 77%. While at the same, in that same two-year period, the number of students in law school in New York only dropped 2%. So you can't just say it's because there's fewer students in law school, we looked at, at that number as well. And just to, to give you some raw data without naming schools, I'm just going to go down a, a list of schools. One school in 2014-15 had 254 students take a New York practice. Last year, 76. Another school went from 126 to 31, 142 to 51, 170 to 14, 93 to 27. I mean, you could see the list goes on but they are precipitous drops. And so what's the, what's the problem that you see that we have New York law schools that are pumping out law students that don't have an understanding of what it means to practice in New York State? I think that this is a, a, a big challenge that this association and the, the House of Delegates should be addressing during the, the coming year and something that is of concern to our committee and it's something that we talked about when we first brought this up before the House. You take a trust and estates class. Let's get off of, of New York civil procedure for a minute. Take a trust and estates class. Well, you can't be effective in New York unless you know the EPTL. Well, the EPTL is not tested on the uniform bar exam. And in fact, the uniform acts are not followed in the EPTL. And so faculty are under the gun by the deans and through the ABA because everybody's looking at how schools are doing in terms of the percentage of students that are passing the bar exam. And so I don't think it's much different, unfortunately, than public K through 12 education in the United States these days. And that we have lots of schools and lots of faculty that feel the pressure to teach the test. I'm not gonna say everybody does, but I think that there are enough that it is making a difference and that anecdotally you will hear from faculty who say they've cut out a lot of the New York law from their courses because they want to make sure their students are prepared for the bar exam. And I think students as consumers expect that law schools prepare them to pass the test. 
And um, I think that that's the unfortunate situation that we're in. Well, you know, you talked about uh, work that the New York State Bar Association's Committee on Legal Education is, is undergoing right now and the fact that the New York State Bar Association should be looking at this issue. But as you know, the New York State Bar Association does not have any any direct role in the the licensing of attorneys, doesn't have any direct role in the bar exam. At the time that this change was taking place, as you also know, the, bar, the New York State Bar Association vigorously opposed the transfer to the UBE for the very reasons that you stated, because it was going to make the uh, license to practice law in New York something that was not really any longer unique to, to New York and New York lawyers. What should we be doing now as a legal profession in New York to uh, address the issue of licensure? I think there are a number of things. I think it would be great for the, the Bar Association to have a summit with the, the court, which does regulate admission to the bar, um, and to have a, a special focus in looking at some of these issues and challenges. And I think that the members of the practicing bar have to speak up if they feel that uh, they would like to see new associates uh, prepared with different skills or with different knowledge and information. And, and maybe they're okay with not having uh, the New York knowledge. Maybe they're okay with the training, and maybe this is cyclical. But I remember a number of years ago, the City Bar, for example, had a task force, and they were looking at the future of the profession. And they said, law schools, you're not doing enough to train lawyers to be practice ready, whatever practice ready means, it's one of those buzz phrases and it means different things to different people. It could be skills, but it could also be substantive doctrinal knowledge. Well, let me ask you this then, since you, you know, you're coming from, from uh, Turo Law School, can't the law schools say, we know what the UBE requires, but our requirements are that you take two semesters of New York practice, or our requirements are that you take a semester if you want to graduate from our law school so that you understand what the New York State Trust and Estates Law is. So what's the benefit to the law schools in, unless the practicing bar comes in and says, we're not going to hire students that graduate from any law school unless they show us their transcript that they've taken New York law courses. But if the marketplace doesn't demand it of the students, then the law schools don't have to deliver that because the law schools are really under pressure to make sure that the students are prepared for the bar exam. And if the bar exam doesn't care about it, you know, and that's why this becomes cyclical and why I think the Bar Association as a whole, not just the Committee on Legal Education, this is really for all of the practitioners, you know, and our members, what do we want from legal education. So, you know, and there's another part of this. The the law schools have also been under pressure from the, the court uh, to deliver other things as part of legal education. So in access to justice, you know, a number of years ago, the former chief judge said, law schools, your students have to have 50 hours of pro bono. Now, I'm going to get technical for a second. He just said, in order to be admitted to the bar, you have to complete 50 hours of pro bono. But let's be real, most people that get admitted to the bar in New York coming from a New York law school or any law school, they're coming right out of school. They want to go. We're all in competitive marketplace. You want to know, can I do my 50 hours of pro bono while I'm at school? So the schools have to figure out how to do that. Also recently, there was a pathways program that was instituted that's part of the regulations for admission to the bar. Students now or applicants for the bar have to show that 
they have completed a certain number of experiential credit hours. It doesn't have to be in law school. It could be from a law firm or a, a not-for-profit organization. There's a lot of paperwork that goes along with that. The students expect that the law schools will make the pathway easy for them and provide that opportunity because they can't get admitted without it. It's a condition of admission, just like the MPRE. And just like, by the way, the new New York law course and New York law exam. And we can talk about that also as an add-on, as maybe a, a, a potential toss to, to some New York law, although a lot of us have doubts whether it's effective. Well, let's talk about first about the experiential learning. That means it's more like practical experience. So law students traditionally that we've been talking about, you go to class, you read, you study case law, uh, and you come out and you know how to read a case and you know what the case stands for doesn't mean that you understand how you actually practice law. Correct. And so the experiential learning puts a student in situations where they'll be kind of doing things that they might be doing as, uh, you know, first-year associate, et cetera. Sure. You know, and, and there's a, a, a very good reason to, to do that, and I'm actually an, an advocate of right. mandatory clinics or mandatory uh, externships and experiential requirements. The question is, how much of it should be required versus how much of it should be summer job opportunities, mid-semester internships or an internship, you know, while you're in school versus the focus and the number of hours that somebody spends doing that. Because if it's going to be done during the course of getting those 87, 88, 90 credits towards your law degree, and there are certain doctrinal areas that are tested on that bar exam as well, there's a lot of pushes and pulls and trying to get right um, what you need in order to get your graduate licensed. Right. So you also mentioned that there's going to be some changes to the bar exam uh, as they relate to New York law in New York. And what are those? Well, so it's, it's not a change to the bar exam. When New York went to the uniform bar exam, one of the things that the court uh, did and I think that this was in response to the bar association uh, its concerns quite frankly is they said you know we're not going to add a third day to the the bar exam because two days is is long enough but but what we're going to do is as a condition to admission this is not a bar exam but as a condition to admission everybody who wants to be admitted in New York must take a New York law course which is an online course that is offered through the New York Board of Law Examiners after you take that course, then you sit for an online multiple choice New York law exam. So we, we are told that if you take the New York law exam or New York law course that's required, everything that's in that course is what's tested on the exam. So if you pay attention and do the reading and study, you should do fine on this 50 question uh, multiple choice exam. We have asked for data. Um, on the number of, of people that pass and fail the exam and so forth. We have not uh, gotten that yet. We are uh, told that it's not treated the same as a bar exam because it's not a bar exam. It's just an exam that's given as a condition of admission. We may be talking semantics, but that's another measure floating out there and something that our committee would like uh, data on in order to assess, is this enough to satisfy the concern that we don't think students know enough New York law, or at least the way they used to, and what we think the practicing bar would like to see. You know, when we switched over to the UBE, speaking about data, we talked about what type of impact this might be on different segments of the law student community, uh, specifically 
minority uh, community because we had an interest in encouraging and promoting fairness and uh, diversity uh, in the legal profession. And at the time, there wasn't any sort of study uh, as to the impact of the UBE, and we were told at the time that there would be, certainly within three years. it's now three years out where we've had the UB. What kind of information do we have about the, the students that are, are passing and the passage rates and how that might have a disparate impact on certain segments of the population? Well, I can't speak to the disparate impacts yet or the potential disparate impacts yet because uh, although a study is underway and it's been going on now for a couple of years, uh, we have not uh, been shared or, or any data at this point. I know the data has been collected. Um, the New York Board of Law Examiners and the Court of Appeals are working with NCBE um, on this. Um, NCBE, by the way, is the one who actually writes and gives the test. So whether that's going to be totally independent, you know, I think that that there are enough people that have questions and doubts about that. But let's wait and see what the study actually shows. It involves, uh, they asked all the law schools in the country to participate, so it's not just New York focused, but of course we're interested most in the New York data. So we'll see uh, what happens when that report comes out. We hope it's going to come out uh, sometime this year. Of course, the New York bar exam results from July are due out uh, by the end of next month. They're not out yet, but they are out in other states. And so what we do know is that yet again, and this has been a, a trend now for a number of years, um, the MBE part of the bar exam, which is the multiple choice uh, part, the scores keep going down nationally. They have gone down nationally two points now. And the states that have early reported their bar exam results, again, uh, bar passage rates are down. Our bar passage rates were down in New York in February. They were up a little bit in July of last year. So we'll see what happens with the July uh, rates for this year. As part of this discussion, Patty, uh, part of the discussion is, is there a better way for us to license lawyers? Uh, it's important, obviously, that when you become a lawyer and you're an officer of the court, that you have the proper uh, education, experience. Um, but is there a better way for us to determine that and to, to license lawyers? So I think there is a better way. There are a lot of, of people and organizations that uh, starting a couple of years ago have really put emphasis and focus on studying this. So, for example, I mean, our committee, the Committee on Legal Education and Mission the Bar for the State Bar Association, looked at this years ago, and I think that we were really a, a leader in the bar exam reform movement, and there was a report that was uh, written and presented to the executive committee again years ago that talked about having an experiential component of the bar exam where you could look at what skills does somebody actually have. Because when you think about it, and the way the bar exam is structured now, you get very little. You get what they've memorized to answer 200 multiple choice questions, and what they've memorized plus how they could articulate in writing an essay to make sure that they've identified issues uh, and tied the law to those issues uh, in those short essay uh, questions. But you don't get at, can this person counsel a client? Um, Can this person uh, speak uh, in a professional way to opposing counsel? Can this person uh, take information and reflect upon it and react or respond in an appropriate manner? 
things that you might have to do if you took a clinic, things that you might have to do if you were working with a client or making a motion in court. I think that law firms have also said, you know, students come in and they don't know how to uh, write questions for a, a deposition, that students come in and they don't know how to write a complaint or an answer or a particular motion because that's really not part of the doctrinal classes, although there's been a movement to increase uh, more skills into that. And if you don't require your students to take a clinic, um, and if that clinic is not a litigation clinic, they're not getting that. And then what do we want our students to know with ADR? We don't require mediation and arbitration in most law schools either. And so we're very transactional, we're very document driven, but that has not traditionally been part of what's tested, so it's not part of what's emphasized. And so thinking about you know the licensing of lawyers, I think it's important for this bar association and all bar associations to really come up with the list of what do you want in a new associate? What do you think is going to make a great lawyer in your firm? What background knowledge do you want them to have and what skills do you want them to have? And at the end of the day, Dave, maybe it's not New York law. Maybe it's you want them to have some business classes. Maybe it's that you want to know that they have great interpersonal skills. You know, very few schools interview students before they come to law school. You're looking at somebody's personal statement and their LSAT scores and their uh, other college transcripts. And so sometimes you get what you get. Right. And so, you know, there, there are so many variables, but I think if you work this backwards and you say, this is what we're looking for, so we're going to design an exam or a, a series of exams for licensing that measure what it is that we want, and then that goes backwards because then the law schools will, will say, we'll prepare our students for the licensing exam that you want to give. And so somehow, I think we have to just step back. It's not going to happen overnight. The ABA has a commission on the future of legal education that's looking into this. And in fact, if I can give a blog plug to the New York State Bar Journal, uh, they just did an issue uh, that came out this month on issues in legal education. And Trish White, who's the chair of the ABA commission, has an article in there on questions that we should be thinking about uh, in the licensing of lawyers and what we want. A group called Access Lex is giving out grants to law professors and other researchers who want to study the bar exam and the licensing of lawyers. NCBE, that is the, the uh, author of the Uniform Bar Exam, has announced that they're doing a task force looking at bar exam and bar exam reform. So right now, you have lots of national groups looking at uh, licensing of lawyers and bar exam reform, lots of questions, you know, should we have one high stakes exam at the end of three years of law school, or should we do what accountants do and what the medical schools do? And that's at certain points during your education, you have to take an exam and pass it in order to move on. And so, you know, I think that we have lots of opportunity and um, we're really, at a time when the ABA is poised to be open for change, when it seems like the uh, examiners are questioning themselves, you have an outside organization providing funding for research, um, and this is a great time to be in legal education if you're a reformer and if you believe in experimentation because you think that we can get to a better place. 
Well, Patty, uh, these are all a lot of uh, very important, interesting issues, and you're right, the New York State Bar Association just dedicated its the September 2018 uh, New York State Bar Association Journal to what's next in legal education, uh, due in large part to the work of uh, the people on your committee, on the Committee on Le Legal Education and Admission to the Bar, which um, has been out in the forefront, at least, in helping guide our association as we move forward. And so I thank you uh, on behalf of the association for your work and your service to the profession in that regard, very important way. And I thank you for, for being with us here today, Patty. So thank you. And I want to thank you as past president of this association and your ongoing leadership and interest in legal education issues. They're often not the sexy issues for the Bar Association, but they really are our backbone. So, so thank you. Yes, well, you're welcome. It's a real, it's a love fest today, Patty, having you on. <laughs> Patty, we have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie, where you can share a uh, artistic performance uh, of any type related to this or not. Uh, we already talked about the New York State Bar Association Journal. Uh, I think we'll give you another one. Uh, that you might want to share with our listeners? So I, I think uh, for those that know me, you know that I have a, a, an affinity for Billy Joel music, and I was able to actually tie that passion into thinking about my own doctrinal subject matter interests, which is land use and zoning. And while I was dean at Turo, uh, I think one of, one of the favorite things that I did uh, was participate in a law review symposia on Billy Joel and the law. And it, no, it was not my idea, uh, okay. but I was happy to, to support it. And I wrote an article on how Billy Joel has been the chronicler of suburbanization through his music and took lyrics at different points in time and tied it into the public policy in New York State and the legislature and changes in local government planning and zoning in the different eras of the things that he was writing about on the album and uh, what was happening. And so that was probably one of my most favorite things to write. Well, that's that's great. Billy Joel, obviously, a New York state of mind and <laughs> one of the great legal defenses, we didn't start the fire. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> so uh, wonderful to have uh, Patty Salkin here with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings for all things legal and some that aren't.